Today we continue our study in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications for an overseer or elder or church leader, however you want to put it. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we're going to be looking at verse 2 and uh, finding some of the qualifications that are listed there. Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, had a great story about the attitude of a spiritual leader. He says that a spiritual leadership and authority cannot be explained solely on the grounds of natural ability is strikingly exemplified in the life of St. Francis of Assisi. On the one occasion, um, Brother Maceo, a, a friend of his, looking earnestly at Francis, began to say, Why thee? Why thee? He repeated it again and again as if to mock him. What are you saying? cried Francis at last. I am saying that everybody follows thee. Everybody desires to see thee, to obey thee. And yet for all that, you are neither beautiful or learned or of noble family. Why is it that it should be you whom the world desires to follow? And when St. Francis heard those words, he was filled with joy, raised his eyes to heaven, and after remaining a long time absorbed in contemplation, knelt, praising and blessing God with extraordinary fervor, then turned to Brother Maceo and answered, Thou wishest to know? It is because the eyes of the Most High have willed it so. He continually watches the good and wicked, and his most holy eyes have not found among sinners any smaller man, nor any more insufficient and sinful. Therefore he has chosen me to accomplish the marvelous work which God hath undertaken. He chose me because he could find none more worthless." And he wishes to confound the nobility and grandeur and strength and beauty and learning of this world, end quote. That is a great quote. That's one of those things you wish you could say. But of course, you usually say, well, because I've got these qualities. You know, I can do this better than anybody else, or I'm strong here, or these strengths here, or I am this, or I accomplished that. Therefore, God has used me, but not that he could not find a more worthless and smaller man. William Lawrence, in an article entitled Distinctive in Christian Leadership in Bibsag Journal, July of 1987, wrote this, Christian leadership is different from other kinds of leadership because no Christian leader can assume the position of being number one, that is, the leader. This is true because those who believe in Christ know there is only one number one, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, a Christian leader must know who the leader is. He must know who is in control and that he is not in control. Jesus commended his disciples for calling him teacher and Lord, titles that show him to be their superior in knowledge and authority. These titles show that he was the one to whom they were accountable, the one they were to follow. There was no confusion as to who the leader was. 
The chief characteristic of a Christian leader must be submission to Christ. And only those who have learned that submission is the key to power can be effective Christian leaders. The crown of Christian leadership is a crown of thorns. It is when the leader learns to submit to Christ as leader, that is, when he learns to fly the white flag of victory, that he becomes an authoritative Christian leader, end quote. And that is what we are looking at this morning in our text. What is a Christian leader? What are the qualities of a Christian leader? What makes a man qualified to serve in the church as a man of God, as a Christian overseer or elder or bishop or pastor or shepherd, whatever those terms you want to use, what makes a man qualified to be that kind of man? And then today, as we pick up the mirror of God's word, we are going to show Uh, in that mirror, a little bit of what God says a leader must look like. And while the text before us is directed primarily at leaders and their qualifications, it applies to all of us. And this is why. First and foremost, it is the standard that leaders must attain to. It is the, the entry fee, so to speak, for entrance into the work of an overseer. Secondly, it applies to those who might someday desire leadership. Third, it applies to those who are going to present before the elders the names of those who they think are qualified. You can't present somebody unless you know what qualified means. Fourth, it is for the church so that the church can know how to pray effectively for their leaders. Fifth, it is necessary that the church understand God's qualifications so they can hold their leaders to that specific standard of leadership. And sixth and finally, everyone needs to know the kind of men God commands them to follow, emulate, and submit to. So this is not just for leaders, although it's talking about leaders. So if you have your Bible, follow along, and I'll read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll just look at part of verse 2. Paul writes, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into a reproach and snare of the devil. We have already discovered that the word overseer is a synonym for the word pastor, elder, shepherd. They're all the same words. We learned that the qualifications listed here are must-be qualifications. Paul uses a present active infinitive, which means they are qualities which always must be present in the life of an elder. And if they aren't present, then he is not qualified. We don't have the um, um, you know, right to be setting aside what God says we must 
be or must do. Now, of course, this does not mean that if in order to be an elder, you have to be perfect because no one is perfect. We are all sinners um, and we sin. There is no person who in any area of their life um, reaches the perfection of the holiness of God. We are all imperfect. John Calvin said, It is one thing to be weighed down with ordinary faults that do not tarnish a person's reputation because most other good men share such faults. But it is totally a different matter to have a reputation that is derided and blackened by scandal. End quote. When people look at an elder, they need to see lived out in that man's life the characteristics we are, which we are looking at in this text. And some people say, well, but what if, what if, um, what if you've pretty much got all of them but just one? Then they're not qualified to be an elder. This is not all pick and choose what you want qualifications. These are all necessary qualifications, and we have to submit to God in this manner. Since the phrase must be, again, is present active, it must be continually the pattern of a person's life to display these things in order for them to be qualified as an elder. I remember when I was young, I played in a basketball league and and, uh, we had this coach and uh, each year the coach would make us do certain things. You have to come to practice. You have to do what I tell you. You have to have a good attitude. You have to work as a team. And if you don't, you can't play. And that's just how it was. And we didn't have an option. And that's how it is with being a spiritual leader. God says you must have these qualifications. If you don't, you can't play. You can't be a leader. And that's just all there is. Paul, after comparing himself to a runner and an Olympian and a boxer, said this in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that... After I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Disqualified from what? From leadership, from the gospel ministry, from being an example for other people to follow. Every elder, like every athlete, must conform to the standards written here. And and just in this text alone, we have 14 qualifications. And last week we looked at one, which is kind of the umbrella qualification, which is above reproach. Um, That is kind of the overarching um, umbrella that all leaders must fit unto. They must be above reproach. But what does that mean? That's kind of vague. And so Paul then launches into 13 specific areas where an elder must be above reproach. Above reproach meaning blameless or unreprovable. The Greek literally means not able to be laid hold of, that is ungraspable. You can't find, get, get a hold of any form of sin or, or wickedness in an elder's life. He is, he is ungraspable. You can't hold him. Daniel is a good example of this. You remember what Daniel 
Uh, did in Daniel chapter 6. He was the faithful leader. He had some people there, the other satraps and uh, um, wise men were kind of jealous of him because Daniel was, was, you know, just rising up to the top. And here he was, this young squirt, and he was smarter than they were and he could interpret dreams and they were getting um, jealous. And so they were going to try and find an accusation against Daniel. And this is what Daniel 6 4 said. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they couldn't find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. This is exactly what God requires of leaders in the church. You have to be above reproach. Now, the text before us um, explains all of this being above reproach. And actually, if you were to look at some other texts, and we are going to look at them right now, but um, if you were to look at first or Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, you would find another list there. If you were to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, you would find another list there. If you were to look at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and following, you would find more qualifications there. And so, mind you, this is just the beginning of something very painful. Now, as you look at these qualifications listed here in this text, you might be thinking... Okay, what do all these mean and why does Paul put these here? Well, they can basically be broken down into three or four categories. I think four categories are are good. And I'm just going to read you just the qualifications that are mentioned in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and or 1 Timothy and Titus, and I'm just going to read through them before we look at our little six qualities today so you can kind of see the big picture and how these qualities relate to an elder. First, there are qualifications relating to a man's responsibility before God. He is to be holding firm to sound doctrine. He needs to be upright and holy in conduct. He needs to be able to teach He needs to be above reproach, not to be a new convert, loving what is good and tested. He also needs to have qualifications relating to himself and how he relates to other people. He needs to be sincere, respectable, hospitable, not quarrelsome, not violent, but gentle, good of good reputation with outsiders, not overbearing, not a pursuer of dishonest gain. He also needs to have qualifications relating to self. He needs to be disciplined, temperate, not a lover of money, self-controlled, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness. And he needs to have certain qualifications relating to his family. A one-woman man having obedient children and managing his family well. And that's all, just from those two texts. So if you could do that, it's easy. Now, right now, if you are in any sort of leadership, you're going to kind of feel like sliding down in your seat and kind of crawling for the door. Because this is a big list. This, this list is like Mount Everest without oxygen. I mean, this is a scary thing to try and even attain to. And if it isn't for the grace of God working in a man's life, there is no way he could even approach doing this. It's, it's basically impossible. 
in the power of your own flesh and the desire of your own will and the wisdom of your own might, you could not attain to this. This is far beyond what humans can attain to. And I just throw that out to let you know that as I study this, this is very convicting for me and it's very convicting for every elder in this church. I can tell you that right now. And maybe some of you were thinking last week that, you know, maybe I could desire this. And then you're thinking, no, no, I couldn't. But you can. By the grace of God, you can. I'm not saying that we should lower the standard. I'm saying that God is able to to build into men character which matches the standard. Otherwise, he wouldn't require it as something that must be. So let's look at these qualifications. Look at 1 Timothy 3.2. He says, An overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Now let's just stop there. First qualification, the overseer must be the husband of one wife. Now, if you do a little study of Paul and you do a little study of a lot of times his, his lists of things, he often puts the most important quality up front. He often lists them first of first importance and then he goes down. Now, what's interesting is, is he puts this husband of one wife quality right up front. And if you looked at uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 6, you would see right after he says um, elders must be above reproach, the first thing he mentions there, the first specific quality is the husband of one wife. Now, that is significant. So we know that being above reproach as an elder begins with one's marriage and a man's relationship to his wife. And we must ask the question, what does husband of one wife mean? Because a lot of people have proposed different interpretations. Some have said the husband of one wife means um, means that a man should be um, married for sure, otherwise he can't be an elder. Of course, this would not be um, the case. Uh, Paul was not married. Paul saw himself as an elder. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says it is preferable to be single, but he says not all men can accept that because not all men have the gift of singleness. Um, He is addressing the normal situation, which is that men would have, a man would have a wife, but that if he did have a wife, he would have to be a husband of one wife. Now, you might think, well, that means he's talking about polygamy. He's saying you, you, you can't have more than one wife. Well, that's true. You can't have more than one wife. Um, it's hard to be a one-woman man when you are a two-woman man. <laughs> or a three or a four or whatever. And so, of course, he's, he's not specifically addressing polygamy, but, of course, that would be included The Greek phrase literally means a one-woman man or a man devoted to one woman. That's what it means. And he is not arguing against polygamy per se. He's not saying you have to be married. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying only having been married once. Some have tried to say that Paul is saying here that you can only be married once, and if you are married more than once, then you can't be an elder. But, of course, that wouldn't line up with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans chapter 7 when he says if there's a death of a spouse, it's legitimate to get remarried. I mean, you can't help it if your spouse dies. And, of course, if 
there was an abandonment if, uh, if a man, let's say, came to Christ and he had an unbelieving wife and that unbelieving wife did not want to live with him and she said, see you later, that Paul actually commands, he says, let them leave. Because God has called us to peace. Jesus also said that if... In the cases of adultery, um, divorce and remarriage is permissible. So he couldn't be saying you can only have been married once because the scriptures give ample reasons um, in certain cases for getting divorced and remarried or getting remarried if your spouse dies. And so he can't be saying that either. So what does Paul mean when he says an overseer must be the husband of one wife or literally a one-woman man? What he's talking about is a man who is faithfully committed to his one wife. That's what he's talking about. He's a one-woman kind of man, a man faithful to his one wife. That's what he's talking about. That is the area that must first and foremost be looked at in the life of every elder. In the What the Bible Teaches commentary series by Ritchie, he says the phrase describes the absolute fidelity of an overseer to one woman. He goes on to say that in order for a man to take a position as an overseer, his personal morality and marital fidelity must be unassailable, end quote. John Stott says he must have an unblemished reputation in the area of sex and marriage. John MacArthur rightly points out that many men married only once are not, only, are not one woman men. Many with one wife are unfaithful to that one wife. Then he goes on to point out that failure to be a one woman man has put more men out of the ministry than any other sin. And that is true. And that is true. When you look at uh, people um, and you see men in the ministry who are disqualified, that is almost always the sin. Uh, One of the pastors I worked with in Boise, Idaho, uh, Jim Harris, keeps a mental checklist. I don't know if he writes them down of all of his friends that he went to seminary with who fell to moral temptation. And the list gets big and scary because it is an area where many men compromise and disqualify themselves from the race. Paul warns Timothy about this in 2 Timothy 3.6. He warns about men who, quote, enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. Some men are sexual predators at heart. They are always looking looking for a weak woman led astray. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'll show you why it is so important that a man have this area under control. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. Paul here is talking in the whole chapter, starting with false prophets in chapter 2, verse 1, and false teachers and all about the consequences of their sin and all of this. And look at verse 12. He says this, But these, that is these false teachers, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. Now, how would you like that? You're, you're like an animal. Because you just follow after your own lusts, you're just like an animal that is to be captured and killed. That is a pretty graphic picture. 
reviling where they have no knowledge and will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Now look at verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. If you don't know the story of Balaam, Balaam was a man who was hired by Israel's enemy to curse Israel, but God intervened. He ended up blessing them. And so then he thought, okay, I've got another idea. This is what you do. You send your most beautiful women into the camp of Israel, have them seduce the weak men, and then the men, when they commit acts of fornication with these women, God will be so infuriated that his wrath will come down on Israel and he will destroy his own people. And guess what? The women went in the camp and guess what? The men went astray and guess what? 24,000 people died of a plague that God just just rifled through the camp. And if it wasn't for Phinehas, a very righteous and very passionate individual who ran into the tent of two people in the midst of fornication, he speared them through and God said it was because that man did that act that I stopped the plague. And so only 24,000 died. And so it is a... It is a scam to have a man in ministry who is not pure in his heart, pure in devotion to his wife, who is not thinking impure thoughts all the times, who keeps himself devoted to his one wife. He must be like Job, who said in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Or like the psalmist, who said in Psalm 119.37, Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. He pleads with God. Just help me to look away. Help me to turn away. Help me to just keep my eyes looking at what I need to look at and not looking at what I shouldn't look at. The spiritual leader is a man who comes to the Word of God and he understands the danger of immorality. And if you think I'm kind of hammering away on this, you're right. Because this is something that is epidemic in our society. I mean, I am amazed at at parents and what they let their kids do and and just the lack of discernment in this area. Turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. show you a couple chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Proverbs are probably some of the most concentrated information on the consequences of pursuing immorality. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and your lips may reserve knowledge, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. He says in verse 8, Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. 
And he talks about all the consequences of this, how they will groan, verse 11, in your final end when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart have spurred reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my heart to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly of the congregation. And then he goes on and says, and you drink water from your own cistern. Picture of your own wife. You don't go out drinking water from anybody else's cistern. Then he goes on, look at verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart and tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is the light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. In what area? Verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for precious life. He says, can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You know, just if you're getting tempted in that area, just go home, get some Kingsford you know, charcoal baquettes, get a nice big batch of hot coals going and just get a shovel and just dump some down your shirt. And ask yourself, does this burn? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? Pour them on the ground and walk on them. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must play sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. And then all of chapter 7 is all about this young man who gets seduced and goes astray in this area. And look at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Now comes the scary part. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. You know, if you've ever raised cattle, and I have, and you put them in the the chute, and you walk them down in this narrow place so they can't get away, and you just get a gun, you put it up to their head, and pow! They don't even know what's happening. They're just dead. Like an ox to the slaughter. Until an arrow pierces through its liver, until a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways and do not stray into her paths. Don't let it happen inside Don't let it happen outside. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, literally a highway to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So you can see why this whole matter of of 
fidelity in marriage is so critical in the life of an elder, of a life of a man who is qualified to serve in the church. He must have this area under control. Because if he is unfaithful to the one he has made a covenant to, to love and to cherish, then how can he be faithful to the church of God? And the polite answer is he cannot. The spiritual letter remembers the command, you shall not commit adultery, remembers Jesus' words that any man who lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery already. And this is just the beginning of it all. So often men think that being the head of their wife, um, being the leader of their home, means that they get to be the dictator, the authoritarian, the oppressive landlord. But that's not what being a husband is all about. That's not what God has called husbands to. Being the spiritual head of your family means being responsible to lead your wife as Christ did the church, as a servant leader. It amazes me that men think they have some right to act like a dictator over their wives to oppress them when they're trying to submit, to use their wives' acts of godly submission as a tool to oppress them is of the utmost wickedness. All you need to do is look in the scriptures, Ephesians, write these down, guys. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Colossians 3, 19. 1 Peter 3, 7. You read those texts. You write down everything you have to do, not what your wife has to do, what you have to do as a husband. And you will know where God has given you authority. Let me just tell you real quick. You have the responsibility and the authority to lead your wife by taking the responsibility for your household. Secondly, by loving her as Christ loved the church. Third, by giving yourself up for her needs. Fourth, by sanctifying her. Fifth, by cleansing her. Sixth, by washing her with the word and working to present her in all her glory without flaw, holy and blameless. Seven, by loving her as you would your own body and self. Eight, by nourishing her. Nine, by cherishing her. Ten, by being in, not in being uh, embittered against her. Eleven, by living with her in an understanding way. Twelve, by being with her uh, living with her as a weaker vessel, and 13, by granting her honor. So take charge. Be an authority and do that because this is where your authority begins and ends, to love your wife. And if you do a little study, you will find out that husbands have twice as much responsibility towards their wives as the wives do to the husbands. It does not mean you get to be the evil landlord. It means you get to be more of a servant, more godly, more committed, more self-sacrificing because you are to be the model of Christ and how he loved the church and he loved the church by not being served but serving and giving himself up for his wife. So a spiritual leader must not only refrain from sexual immorality both internally and externally, he must model what it means to love his wife faithfully. And this is the reason Paul put the qualification in front. First and foremost, look at a man. Look at his relationship with his wife. See how content his wife is, how loved his wife is. And if his wife is loved, is content, is growing in godliness, then then, then you know. 
that he can even be considered. The second qualification says he must be temperate. He must be temperate. This is the second quality after above reproach. In other contexts, it's used of not being intoxicated with alcohol, but since later he says not addicted to wine, most commentators believe he's just talking about sober-mindedness or mental balance or having the um, well-organized, clear-thought-out internal thought life. His, His life is not focused around pleasing his senses. He's not one of these people who wants to please himself here and please himself there and do this for himself and because he needs to feel this way and he wants this or he wants that. His life is about pleasing God and pleasing others. He is well balanced. He doesn't sway with his flesh, but he tells his flesh what it's going to do and what it's not going to do. He buffets his body like Paul said. He has control of his thought life, he is calm, he is mentally stable, and he craves God. He would rather read the scriptures than have a a piece of chocolate cake, is what he's talking about here. He is a lover of truth, a lover of devotion, of service to God. That's what he craves. He craves to do God's will. And the whole point is that he is a master over himself, his passions and desires. And if he cannot master his own personal life, his own desires and his own pastors, he can't rule the house of God. Third, an overseer must be prudent. The word prudent means self-controlled or sensible or sound of mind. It describes a man not swayed by sudden impulses. He's not flippant. He's not rash. He's prudent. He's able to see things weigh them thoughtfully, and make actions. There are some men that you look at their lives and you wonder, how do they do everything they do? And when you talk to them, they actually seem calm. You know know this person's got this really hairy job, and, and you know that they have this ministry and that ministry, and you're looking at them and you're thinking, and they look so calm all the time. I mean, how do they do that? They do that because they're prudent. Because they have thought through their priorities. Because they plan ahead. Because they anticipate what's coming. Because they set aside their own personal pleasures. They sacrifice all for the sake of serving Christ. And their life shows it. They got it together. And even though everybody else is in a fray, they're not. Fourth, an overseer must be respectable. He must be respectable. This might also be translated virtuous or having inner moral excellency, which produces excellent outward behavior. It is to have a well-ordered life in every context, especially in the areas of godliness. He is disciplined in the area of godliness. This is similar to being prudent, but it emphasizes more of what others see. Others see you as being a man with godly priorities, and this makes you respectable. Fifth, an overseer must be hospitable. This is one of the attributes that is a little harder to apply to our culture. Back then, um, people just traveled around, especially Christians, um, when they went from place to place. And as people traveled, they either slept on the dirt outside, crawled under some rock or bush and were exposed to the elements, or somebody let them into their house. 
And so the word literally means in the Greek, friend of strangers, especially Christian strangers. Recently, the elders, some of the elders went to the Shepherds Conference, and while we were there, um, there were men from all over the world attending that conference, and, and I had about nine men call me and want places to stay, and I didn't have room for them all, and so um, some of the other elders volunteered, and they held, had strangers in their house, men they didn't even know. They fed them, they took them around. That is hospitality. It is opening your house to other people, not just to entertain them, but to minister to them. An elder who who hides at home and then comes out once a week to exhort people is not practicing hospitality. He must have people in his home. Usually the person who doesn't want people in the home, there's a reason he doesn't want anybody in their home. They might find out what his home is like. They might find out what's lying around that he reads. They might find out what his wife's like or what his children are like. And so they keep people out of their home. But the godly man uses his home as a base of ministry. And six, an overseer must be able to teach. The last qualification of an elder um, mentioned in verse two is able to teach. This is a unique qualification because it's in the midst of all these moral qualifications and this is a spiritual gift. You have to have the ability to teach. And it shows the importance of this act in the church, the importance of being able to teach sound doctrine. It really literally means apt to teach or skilled to teach or qualified to teach. Of course, as an elder, you would need to be able to teach people the Word of God. I mean, if the Scriptures say you are to devote yourself to prayer and ministry of the Word, you've got to know how to minister the Word. One commentator said, it stresses not only the knowledge itself, but the ability to impart that knowledge. Readiness and skill is, the, is um, in respect, make an elder one who formally or informally can present the truth, a skilled and ready teacher in company and never misses an opportunity to instruct, end quote. He's, he's not only able to teach, but he has studied himself so he can teach. I mean, you can't pump out of a dry well. I mean, just because you studied Romans 10 years ago doesn't mean you remember, remember everything. You've got to constantly, as Paul tells Timothy, working, studying the scriptures, Titus 1.9 makes this even clearer. Paul told Titus this, that an elder must be one who is holding fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. What does this mean? First, an elder must know the scripture. He must know it well enough to know sound doctrine. He must know it well enough to spot error, and not only well enough to spot error, but but well enough to spot it so as to be able to refute it from the Scriptures and show people why it's error and why it's not truth. He must be able to refute those who contradict. That's what Paul tells Titus. Turn over to 1 Timothy 4, 6. Just across the page in my Bible, page 329. Look at what it says there. He's talking here about um, what a good or excellent minister is, and he says this. He says, In pointing out these things, the things that we've been studying so far and all the rest of chapter 3, 
in pointing these things to, out to the brethren, you will be a good or excellent servant of Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says here. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine which you have been following. The word constantly is not in the text, but the word nourished because it's present active means you are always, all the time being nourished. And this is the hard part about being an elder. It's not the teaching. It's not the making decisions. It's the discipline to feed yourself, not because you're going to teach somebody else, but because you need to feed yourself. Because you need to nourish yourself. Because you can't pump out of a dry well. And you maybe think, well, Jack, you know, that's easy for you to say because you get paid to study. Well, I do. But you know what? Every day I try to read something for me. Something I don't have to prepare for. I read, just read some psalms. I have all kinds of devotional stuff I read. I kind of switch back and forth. I've been reading the letters of Samuel Rutherford and a book on humility and the prayers from the Valley of the Vision and, and Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. And, and I uh, read the, the hymns of Isaac Watts, the psalms and hymns of Isaac Watts, since he's one of my favorite guys. I just read those. Why? Because I need to fill up my own soul. I need to... Just feed me. I need to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith, just like every single other elder must be. So, we've got to end here. And we're just halfway through the list. Scary. When we leave here today... I hope this list here doesn't just scare you spitless. I hope this list shows you what an incredible responsibility it is for you to pray for your elders. To pray for those men that God has called to lead this church. It is a very weighty responsibility. An elder must be above reproach. He must be a one-woman man. He must be tempered. He must be prudent. He must be able to teach. He must be respectable and hospitable. He must be all those things. And they are to be those ways so they can be models for you. So be sure you pray for your elders. You men, make sure you love your wives. And all of us need to follow the example of the standard that is to be lived out in the life of every leader. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so clear in your word about the responsibilities that each one of us is to have as a leader. Father, it is humbling knowing that none of us, when compared to this perfect standard, meet up to it. We only meet up to it in degrees Father, we wish we could be perfect like Christ, but we aren't. But Father, may the fact that we are sinners not discourage us from pursuing excellence in these areas, from seeking you with our whole heart to rise to the level that you have called us to live by, that, Father, your church might be pure, that your church might be solid, that husbands would fulfill their responsibility to their wives. And Father, lead them as Christ did the church. Father, that we might be pure of heart, respectful and prudent. 
and able to teach. Father, we pray this because we know it's your will. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day.